Rolling. Renegades. Andre and I had this big idea. Mind blowing. I had to have the people who didn't believe in me. Between one day and the next, everything changed. Nurses know how to solve shit. Renegades. Welcome to the Renegade Podcast, a revolutionary approach to continuing education for nurses who don't just do what they're told. We're shining a light on the innovators, the creatives, the renegades who are blowing up the boxes that the rest of the world is still trying to think outside of and moving the needle against the gravity of the status quo. Today on the podcast, we have Zachary Cooper, and I met Zach on LinkedIn. And I, I think we had a conversation on somebody's post where we were just going back and forth, um, chit-chatting with each other. And I found him to be extremely positive and truthful and um, wasn't afraid to say what needed to be said. And so we connected, had a great conversation. I fell in love with him even more. And also just fascinated by his, his, some of his story, which I'm excited to get more into. So Zach, yeah. and welcome. When, and after you've had an hour of fun listening to Zach's story and all he has to teach us, don't forget if you're a nurse, go over to myportal.pro after this, register, and you can get a CE for listening to the amazing Zach Cooper. Yay, so, Zach. <laughs> uh, why don't you just tell us? First, how did you get here? <laughs> like, how did why just uh, how did you start out as a nurse? Why did you start out as a nurse? How did you find yourself in the specialty you're in? Where did you go to school, and what do you love about what you do, or why do you do it if you don't love it? <laughs> okay, cool. Thank you guys for having me on. Um, this is really cool to be on a podcast and just uh, talk and run my mouth for no reason other than running in my mouth. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I went to USC Upstate. I'm originally from South Carolina, um, kind of grew up in the middle of nowhere. Uh, USC Upstate was the closest college to where I'm from. Um, I went into college really wanting to be a wildlife biologist. Um, and luckily I had a um, full scholarship to four-year school and my dad and I had a, a long conversation about you have four free years to get this right. So think of something that you can make a career out of in four <laughs> free years. Um, spoke with a couple of my grad assistants that were in the, um, or not mine, but some of the grad assistants in the college that also had wildlife biology degrees um, and decided that I don't know how you survive on salaries like that. Um <laughs> so I applied to nursing school. I got in. I fell in love with nursing. I've always wanted to help people, um, and that's what I enjoy doing. Um, while I was in nursing school, I learned about CRNAs, and like all bright-eyed little nursing students, I was going to get in the ICU and go to CRNA school and be filthy rich. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I shattered in the OR, and I just it was not my cup of tea. Um, I like doing, uh, so I worked in a trauma ICU for a little while. Um, once I had about two and a half years of experience, um, I was presented the opportunity to move abroad. So I moved to the United Arab Emirates and lived in Abu Dhabi and worked for the Cleveland clinic. 
Um, so that was their first big international facility. Um, worked there for two years in their, um, started out as a general ICU and then we split into a few different ICUs and I worked in the cardiothoracic ICU. Um, while I was in the UAE, working with people from all over the world, um, any type of health system, um, lots of coworkers from the UK, from Australia, from New Zealand, you learn more about how their health systems work um, in comparison to ours. Um, even in the UAE, their health system was more similar to the American healthcare system in that you have insurance and that your insurance pays for certain things, um, but your insurance is completely covered by your employer, which um, was really nice. Um, during all that and speaking with all those people, I really fell in love with you know, just community-based initiatives. In the ICU, we saw so many people, um, especially living in the rural South and working in the rural South that would have you know, chronic conditions that if somebody could help them in some way, shape, form, or fashion in the community, they probably would not be in the ICU. Um, yeah. Mm. <clears throat> so I started studying my uh, my master's of nursing. Wait, can I ask you a question? Go back for a second. So you were in, working in Abu Dhabi and working with all these people from all these different places from around the world. And I missed the point. Was this were you just starting to think when you're hearing about all the ways that all these other people do it well, in different parts um, of the world that, oh my gosh, like in your mind, did you apply it to the South? Like, how'd you get from, you were, you were thinking people in rural, in the rural South, if they could just get um, preventative care or, you know, better care then they wouldn't have ended up. So how did you get from that thought to that? Or that were you just like talking about the things you were seeing and the things you were thinking while well, you're... Well, I started thinking about that when I worked um, at home when I first became a nurse. I worked in a neurotrauma ICU, and we took um, a lot of the stroke patients as well. Um, and that's where it kind of started churning in my mind things that we could do in the mm. um, community to help. Um, then once I was in the UAE, they like the Cleveland Clinic had built a full kitchen type classroom thing in the hospital to teach culinary classes for people with congestive heart failure and diabetes, kidney disease, um, to help them with things like that. And in my mind, I'm thinking that's a very simple thing to, um, initiate. Yeah. So why, why is that not something that we do at home? Um, so that, that was always kind of in the back of my mind and, it was almost a mountaintop experience that you just felt so energized and empowered to make change. I came back to South Carolina and, um, you know, started, I worked, took my old job back in the neuro ICU, um, just to get my kind of feet back mm -hmm. in the door. Um, started my master's just working there, having some stability while I started my, um, masters. And then after, I think I was home two years, around two years, um, I took the leap into community health, um, took my first job in senior living 
because I thought the concept of senior living communities was very intriguing. Mm. Um, the fact that, you know, you they have these big, beautiful buildings and grounds and it's just for seniors to live and there's a nurse that is there five days a week and they have care staff to help with anything. The nurse is there to look at their meds, just chatted with them. Um, like I said at the beginning, I love running my mouth. So that was my favorite part of the job is just going around and talking to all the residents in the community. And um, during that time, uh, we had some hospice um, companies that worked in our building, got to speaking with one of those um, reps, and I took a job as a community liaison for hospice. Um, my job in that role was I worked in the sales and marketing team, but as a nurse. So yes, I called on accounts and, and did all the sales type things. Um, I know it sounds really weird saying sales when it comes to hospice, but. Um, <laughs> no, no, you don't think about it, but of course. <laughs> but it was, I like to say that I was just a community educator for hospice. I would speak with pro providers to hospital systems to the general public and explain this is what hospice is and this is what makes it beneficial yeah we're gonna stick a pin in there Anta. i'm gonna just kind of wrap something up and then shoot it over to you so this is so cool zach because the first question after who are you what do you do and why do you do it is i love to know why you know more about the why and usually if somebody's excelling especially if they're an innovator doing something different in their field it's because of an aha you said it was kind of like that top of the mountain moment that was mm -hmm. going to be my next question is like what tell us about an event or an occurrence or a time period that made everything different look different from one day to the next and it sounds like that was yours that being out of the u.s you know, seeing it from a 10,000 foot view and then getting so excited to come back and implement some of the things that you've learned for your community. I would like to know before we go back to that hospice, you know, what you were doing with hospice sales and that, and then Andre chime in, how did that change? How did that change you? Because usually I find, and I could be full of BS, but I find that when something happens, when you when you change a zip code and your IQ goes up, you know, that far, it changes you first. And that's where the excitement comes to kind of gift whatever it was that changed in you to, you know, like spread it out. Can you can you pinpoint or identify anything that was different about you when you came back? Absolutely. Um, you know, growing up again in the rural South is interesting. Um, most people don't ever leave the same town, you know, not even the same County, much less the same state. Um, I can remember when I started college, my grandmother was, you know, just so distraught. She's like, I'll never see you anymore. You'll never come visit me. Um, are you going to come to weekly, you know, family dinners anymore? And I was like, mama, <laughs> college is 45 minutes up the road. Like, I, I, I can come back. No, nope, you'll never come back. That's just too far away. 
So that, what, did that, it, what did she say when you moved over to the Middle East? My goodness. <laughs> probably some things I, I can't say in the public. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> um, but it's, it, that's, that's a, there's nothing wrong with that, but that's a, it's a very different mindset of, you know, just contentment is the easiest way to say it. Just the, the white picket fence, you get married, you start a family, you take a job in the town, um, and then it's just rinse, wash, repeat generation after generation. Um, so, like I said, the I was just presented the opportunity to move away. It was one of my nursing instructors from school. I can't remember if we were in like a Sigma Theta Tau meeting or something. She was just talking about it. I was like, that's interesting. She's like, you want to do it? I said, well, I, why not? So a few months after that, I was on an airplane. It was Thanksgiving day of 2014. Um, I got in an airplane. Um, they actually flew us there in business class. I had no earthly idea what that meant. Um, bought my airport food. I didn't know there was a lounge I could go sit in with a nice buffet and bar and all that <laughs> stuff. And just kind of hung out it with the the commoners and the you know the coach coach commoner. <laughs> um, but anyway, I, I flew the coach people, plebs. Yeah. <laughs> and like when I got a, overseas, it was still it was probably a few months where I could feel my mindset changing. Um, my first week there, I can remember just being a little uncertain about even leaving my, um, my room. Like I, in my um, apartment that I was living in was um, mixed real estate is real big over there. So there was a huge, just massive mall attached to my apartment building. And I can remember slowly, but surely adventuring into the mall. And then within a few months, it was, it just clicked and I absolutely love being in cities. I love being in huge cities. And most people from home or even like my brother will never set foot in a city. Um, but it just opened and it was just not even a culture shock from the going from a, a town of like 15,000 people or a county of 20,000 people to a, a city of hundreds of thousands of people. Um, but moving into a society with a completely different religion, a can, you know, even going from a Western mindset to an Eastern mindset, um, Christian to Muslim, you know, just all that. And it just really opened my mind of humans are humans are humans. Mm -hmm. We're all more similar than different. And I don't understand why people, you know, have some of the thoughts that they have. Um, so I think that was my aha moment that there are ways to think differently than what we're told. Um, cause even, you know, schools growing up, this is kind of some of the things you're taught, um, certain ways you're supposed to think. Um, I grew up in church, you know, this is kind of how, how this goes. This is what you're supposed to do. But even like I, I still consider myself very religious and, you know, 
very solid in my faith, but it's not the Southern Baptist kind of thought process of a lot of things. Um, so that, that I guess that was my aha moment, just sitting back, absorbing, absorbing it all and just opening my mind. And a lot of days, um, you know, it would just be me and my buddy sitting around a table and, you know, I can say one guy was an atheist, one guy was um, very devout Catholic from Ireland, and then one guy was um, a Muslim from um, Lebanon, and we would just kind of sit around and chat about anything and everything. Oh, my gosh. We all have the same, like, thoughts. We just use different words for things, but back home, if you use that different word, they think you're saying the complete opposite of what they're trying to say when we're actually saying the exact same thing. It's like an atheist, a Southern Baptist, and a Muslim walk into a bar. <laughs> That'd be because it was usually in a bar. So that, I mean, it was, um, Zach, it's such a, like, I had a similar experience because my mom picked me and my sister up out of high school, and moved us to Egypt. Just out of the blue, like, hey, we're going to go, you know, try something new. And it was it was exactly the experience that you're talking about. Like it changed. And I grew up in a small um, in a small town, not in the rural south, but it was a small town kind of either you were very wealthy or you were kind of the white trash, which was where I landed. Um and it was such, it was that like you, you, you grow up and you think that things are one way. And then you go to a country like that and you find out that everybody cares about the same things. They care about their families. They care about like, that was a huge mind blowing experience for me as well. So I can totally relate to what you're saying. Like it just opened up so much. And the other thing was how gracious and kind and just amazing the people in the East were like, I'd never been there before. And I had no idea how, how amazingly beautiful a culture it is, the people that, you know, who the people are. It was just crazy. So I, I, I get that. So we're going to take the pin out again. So you come home and it's like, you're a bigger person and you're trying, you're trying on something you fit into better. Right. Um, and then you go and get your, you go and get your masters and then you do the hmm, old folks and then the hospice. So that's where we, we left off. You were doing sales and marketing for hospice, but mostly it sounded like it was education about what it was. Right. right. Yeah. And so, so how did that feel? How did that fit? <laughs> well, I loved it. Like I just, that was one of my favorite things to do. Um, unfortunately I started that job January of 2020. And as we know, March 16th, which, um, the world <laughs> shut go down. down and infamy, yep. <laughs> the world shut down. And, um, you know, people to say, what was the words, you know, essential personnel and non-essential personnel yeah. and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And, um, working in the, the marketing team, we weren't really, you know, hospital shut down, doctor's offices shut down, community events shut down. So I really wasn't needed for the most part or wasn't able. Um, hospice is not something that you want to telemarket. It's like it's just <laughs> during COVID. Very, yes, it, it was very <laughs> uncomfortable trying to have hospice talks with people 
over the telephone and whether it just be who I am as a person or the nurse in me that's like, I need to give you a hug or mm-hmm. like put my hand on your arm while I'm giving you this, this talk or something. It just didn't feel right. So while I was in that role, um, a couple of months in, I was just, I didn't know, like I, it just felt wrong. Like I, I had skills that could be utilized and I was just kind of getting patients, you know, in and, and getting some people, you know, the care they needed. Um, but I, I finally just called our administrator and said, look, I'm a nurse. Give me some scrubs. Let me do nurse work. Like everyone's struggling. Everyone's burnout. Use me, please. Um, and somehow giving that talk, I ended up as the director of nursing. Um, <laughs> that was, uh, yeah. Um, got into all- for <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but it was, it was great because it, it gave me that higher level, um, look into things from an organizational standpoint and the administrator that I worked with in that hospice company was an incredible mentor, just, you know, the MBA business guy that had utmost faith in clinical staff. Um, and he was great you know, to work with. And it would, you know, he was like, here's the numbers, you know, this is what my instructions are, but what do you see as a nurse? Like, what can we actually clinically do to not, you know, hurt patient care or delay patient care or cut a staff member, anything like that? What can we do to make this look better? Um, and if I was to go to him and say, hey, we need this, whatever, it's three times what I'm supposed to spend, but it will make someone's end of life experience much better. He'd be like, okay, just send me the the approval thing and I'll click it. Um, and then on the flip side, sitting in business meetings with him, I learned kind of what EBITDA was and mm-hmm. where certain numbers go and why budgets are the way they are. And that intrigued me like I thought that was the most interesting thing ever and I was like if when nurses are in their masters if we got a good solid accounting class line managers or nursing directors and healthcare systems would have such a like a much better grasp on their role um then do you think do you think if nurses are given more nurse managers were given more no I'm, I'm trying to trying to get in your skin you know in your head after you've been where you've been in the middle east and you come home and then you're put in this position that's not just like your first director position but it's your first director position with all of this experience from the middle east and this drive to make changes and do things but your first position is in the middle of covid so it's like aiming that um, that altruistic, wide-eyed, excited thing at something very specific and very difficult to deal with. But I'm wondering, okay, no, if you were going to go ahead, respond to that. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say when, you, when you're listening, <laughs> reading, watching, whatever of 
healthcare issues in America, what is the common theme? Finances. Yeah. Unaffordable. Um, it's the leading cause of bankruptcy. You know, health systems are shutting down. ERs aren't staffed correctly. Um, nursing organizations are pushing staffing ratios. Organizations are saying we can't afford that. Um, that's why I was saying if if nurses could learn more about finance once they get into those, you know, upper level positions and leadership positions, you can speak the language of hospital leadership. You can understand when they're saying this, we need this number to be this number. And when I was in a director role, my thoughts were, yes, I'm a nurse and I understand clinical operations and things, but a part of my role is being a good steward of my resources and my budget was one of my resources. So if I could save money in this pot, then I could technically have a little bit more money to offer different services or offer better incentives or salaries to the nursing staff by saying, hey, let's be a little bit more conscious on using this certain wound dressing that is six times the cost of this other one that does the exact same thing and is just as nice, but the other one's kind of shiny. And and that's when I, it kind of clicked in my head. It's like, maybe I should do an MBA too. Um, So right now I'm doing my MBA. (laughs) <laughs> okay, so I have, a, I have a question for you. Do you think, well, number one, and you've talked about this kind of since you, we started this podcast is you, what in, what is also, what is also very evident in how you think about things is you have the artistry of common sense to you. You say things that are like, duh, like, why aren't we doing it like this? How come we're not doing it like that? It makes better sense, right? Not to have the shiny object when this thing does the exact same thing. But the question is, do you think the reason that nurses are part of the bedside charge that don't, you know, bill for their services, is it because do you think we lack that understanding in finance and business? Do you think it would be different if we did know? No, I don't I don't think that that comes from a nursing point of view, a nursing perspective, a nursing anything. I think that that's the way it's been done. And it's such a massive undertaking that no one is willing to be the first, Um, which blows my mind, excuse me, when you have health systems or insurance companies posting unheard of profits or profits that have a higher amount than some countries' gross domestic product, um, it's like, why can't you in- reinvest that money? Why can't we at least try? There's research mm-hmm. out there. There's literature about out there about you know nursing billing or some sort of charging. Um, in, in my mind, it wouldn't be much different than respiratory therapist. I feel like a respiratory therapist is a very common position in a hospital, especially as an ICU nurse. You know, we always had had them on the unit. They were, you know, an integral part of the team. And they bill for their services. And even if we didn't just 
maybe bill for a nursing service or things that a nurse does, we could bill for like acuity of care. That would be to me a, a very simple thing of most, like again, back in ICU, we did our MUSE scores. If someone scored whatever, they were super critically severe before MUSE, I think it was called Apache. So you don't think, you don't think that given that we, if we had more accounting, more business um, education, you don't think that once we got into those leadership positions, that would help change something that we've just always done? I think it would help. You do. Because I think it would empower that nurse leader that if they're sitting in a board meeting or sitting in you know those big decision-making groups, they understand the language of business. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's what I think too. And that's, you know, what everyone else is saying. You're understanding, more fully understanding the conversation. And then you're able, if you understand the language of business, you're able to give your response in a way that will make sense to the business professionals. Right. Um, you know, nurses will all day, every day say more staff will give us better care or better patient outcomes. But if someone was to go into a boardroom in, in, in my mind and say, okay, Here's an article that says if we staff this ratio, we'll have zero or we'll decrease the amounts of these events, which these events cost the hospital X amount of dollars. And if we can decrease them by whatever percent, we'll save the hospital millions of dollars a year by implementing two more FTEs in this unit. If you can kind of present things that way, I, I think it would be a lot easier to push that. Well, yeah. What about things like, and I don't know if this is true, but you have so much, um, because people staff so tight, nurses get kind of overworked, right? And they don't stay as long. How much are hospitals losing on orientations for a nurse, you know, like paid orientations, and then they start and it's like they're understaffed and <clears throat> they get burned out and they're like, I'm out of here. And it just seems like, what do you, what do you call it? Um a vicious cycle. <laughs> a vicious cycle. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Talk. Talk. Okay. I okay, want to know. Just res- say what you're going to say in response to that, and then I want to know what are you doing now, and how have you integrated all of this? You know, the way you think into what you're doing now, and why is that different than I? Uh, well, I'll ask that again because I'm getting ahead of myself. Just say respond to the vicious cycle, and then what are you doing now? Um. Orientation costs hospital systems absurd amounts of money. Um, And as people leave sooner, there's no return on the investment of that employee. And and that's really and truly what um, orientation is, is investing in in someone. Their training, their faith in the system, their understanding of the system. and I don't really know how to fix it because like we just said, it is a vicious cycle of you're already understaffed. You throw people into it, then their orientation is not going to be the best it can possibly be because their preceptor may have one to two more patients than they should, or 
there's no janitor and you're taking trash out and you're trying to learn, you know, how to take care of someone, but then you're also being told, okay, at the end of the shift, we have to make sure all this trash is in this room and um, that our linen hampers are full of fresh linens. And so I, I don't know. I This is like just my opinion, but I think if we focus on not acute care hospital, hospital care, we will help in the nursing shortage and crisis because you know, like at the very beginning of the talk, we talked, I said something about it. If we could help people in the community, a, like a, a clinical diabetic educator could, you know, meet with, I don't know how many people um, a week versus, you know, those people end up in the ICU in some type of DKA episode, you know, then you look at calls, uh, a night stay in the ICU is tens of thousands of dollars. ICU should be two-on-one or one-on-one nursing care. Whereas if, if someone empowered a diabetic clinical nurse specialist or a diabetic educator to work in the community with these patients to preemptive, preemptively keep them from getting to that point, um, I, don't know, I think that would be a start of the fix is us empowering um, the community and public health, you know, workforce. Yeah. Then that's assuming that um, they don't want that $10,000 instead. <laughs> so it's yeah. kind of the, that's kind of the dark, that's kind of the dark side, right? <laughs> what are you doing now, Zach? So right now I am the executive director of a company called Medisic, and we are a substance use recovery organization. Um, when I, when I got home and while I was working in hospice and just being out in the community, I just liked seeing what is affecting my community the most and what can I do to help. Um, so three local providers actually started this company. Um, two of them, one is a nurse practitioner that I actually worked with in ICU as an ICU nurse. And one of the owners is an intensivist that we worked with, and the other is an ER doc. And by the time someone has addiction-related issues, and if they end up in the ICU, it's probably not the best of circumstances. Um, you know, if it's an overdose and if they were in the field for extended periods of time, they may have some sort of anoxic injury to their brain or... They may have some type of endocarditis. Um, you know, there's just a lot of issues that can come as after effects of drug use. So they started our first clinic um, in the upstate of South Carolina three years ago. Um, and we're up to seven clinics now. Um, uh -huh. So I really love my role. Um it allows me to do a little bit of all the things I enjoy, like play with the numbers and make graphs and spreadsheets and all that stuff. And then also I'm out in the community, um, just educating people on what recovery looks like, what substance abuse treatment looks like, that it's not something that we should brush to the side or treat as taboo. It's a disease like anything else. Um, 
a lot of times when I'm, I'm doing, you know, or having conversations with people and you get the, the quote, well, if they started drugs, they can stop drugs. And usually my response is, you know, it's, it is a lifestyle type disease, just like congestive heart failure, just like type two diabetes, like COPD, but you don't hear of people telling a type two diabetic, well, you ate too much carbs and sugar. Why don't you just stop? Um, You don't hear the doctor telling them, oh, your A1C is really high. That means you're non-compliant with your treatment program. So we're kicking you out um, and I won't give you any more insulin. In the recovery world, that is commonplace. If someone has a, a, a drug screen that's positive for something illicit, then many of the, the recovery communities, it's a three strike you're out type um, rule and system. It's very um, penalizing, but it's, again, with it being a lifestyle disease, you have to incorporate lifestyle changes. You can't just give someone medicine and say, okay, well, here you go. You're all cured now, but it's a journey. Um, we prescribe medicine. Um, <clears throat> the generic name is buprenorphine. Um, more commonly, it's known as Suboxone. Um, suboxone is um, a medication that helps with people's cravings. Um, it's You can't take too much of it. It plateaus in the body. Um, so even if you were to take your entire bottle, you couldn't overdose on it. So it's a very safe medication. Um, and is, it, it, is it just for the treatment of alcoholism or all substance abuse? Um, opiate use disorder for the most part. Oh, okay. Yep. Um, <clears throat> and when you, when you go out in the community and say that, they think of Suboxone as a dirty word for some reason. Oh, you're one of those clinics or you're one of... Mm. Just because recovery and drug use is such a taboo subject, is it's just interesting. It, it was very similar in hospice because a lot of people, when you go and, hey, I work for hospice, in their mind, they think hospice is a nurse showing up to your house with morphine and Ativan to put someone to sleep. The Grim um, Reapers coming yeah. in, basically. <laughs> where, it's, where hospice is, you know, we're going to make the last however much of your life as mm-hmm. enjoyable and as pleasant as possible. Um, and in recovery, I, I look in the same lens. It's, okay you're you're here asking for treatment you know let's get through this let's make it work let's figure out what's going on if two weeks into the program if someone's you know lab work is positive for whatever then it's not oh strike one it's okay let's go talk to the doctor or the provider um what what happened this week can we adjust your dose did you have cravings was it more of a psychosocial thing did you meet up with some, you know, friends or family members that, you know, you used to, you know, do things with that maybe, you know, you should not be around much anymore or was what's going on. Let's just talk about it. Um, and, and we've been very successful using that mentality and that kind of way of going about things. Um, what, when you say we've been very successful, like how have you seen, have you seen an obvious comparison between the three strikes you're out kind of 
philosophies and methodologies and what you do? Like, is there, is there a number comparison? Uh, we don't really have any kind of numbers like to compare side by side things. One thing I look in, we've, you know, in three years, we've went from one to seven sites. Um, our volume has increased. We keep people in the program and, the way I look at it as a success is these, for the most part, they're checking in with someone and they're getting access to safe medication. Um, I had a sheriff one time ask me what we did to, you know, prevent diversion. Um, Cause that was, you know, he's like that, that's his job is to make sure, you know, illegal drugs aren't in the streets. And I just said, well, you know, gave him all the rules that we do to prevent diversion. And I said, but in the grand scheme of things, it, it's not like opiates, like the fentanyl or opiate, um, like lower tabs or oxys or roxies or whatever. They can get on the street and someone can overdose on them and pass away. Whereas Suboxone, you can't over. It's weird. I can, I can still hear y'all having a conversation the whole time. <laughs> Good thing we didn't say what we were wanting to say about him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're just frozen. All right, now now we know. But okay, so you're sheriff suboxone can't, you know, it's safe. Can't can't overdose. Can't overdose. That's what you're saying. Which I think is such a gentler way to look at it, you know. Well, it reminds me what he's talking about is, you know, they've gone from three clinics to seven clinics. It reminds me of that book and the, you know, the, the way that other countries are dealing with addiction, which she's, is let's provide. Talk, I'm sorry. She's talking about chasing the scream, Zach. I don't know if you've heard or read of that book. I have not, but I, I know what you guys are talking about, like with, with Portugal or the Netherlands. Yeah. yeah. Like they're, they're finding, right. They're finding more success with, a place that somebody who has an addiction can come to, who's not going to get penalized or reprimanded or um, humiliated. And if they go back out and abuse, they can still come back. And people are, at least according to that book, people are still, people are getting sober because they have a support. Right. And I was actually in a symposium a few weeks ago that, um, you know, it was harm reduction. Harm reduction is, one of the things that I, I think is really going to make a difference in in this fight against, you know, the opiate crisis, we'll call it that, because I think that's what it's, opioid epidemic, opioid crisis. But there, the lady that spoke, she was a physician um, in New York City and had a harm reduction clinic in kind of dead center somewhere in New York City. Um, and since they've opened that clinic, the rates of hepatitis, of HIV, of overdoses have dropped tremendously because people know that they can go into her clinic and they get clean needles, um, mm -hmm. alcohol swabs, cotton balls. Mm -hmm. They know that they won't be judged. So if something happens, they'll go in and they get the care they want or need instead of trying to not be found because they don't want to be judged or they don't want to be 
arrested. Um, and I just think that's the way to move forward because addiction has existed since the dawn of time and it'll be around until the end of time. I mean, how many thousands of years ago do they know that people started making alcohol or smoking tobacco or whatever? Like it, it's existed and it's not something that needs to be criminalized or made taboo. It's a part of human existence. And yes, there are dangers to it and it can be dangerous, but having access to clean, safe drugs and safe environments is a lot less harmful than removing all of the medications um, from circulation for things to fill that void. Um, with drugs, it's, it's a supply and demand. And during, you know, now the all of the drug manufacturers have been sued by the federal government and for the um, oxycodone issues. But if you think about it, yes, they were giving unsafe amounts of medications out. But the medications that the patient didn't take were in the street supply, but we knew those were safe medications that were manufactured in a plant by a drug company. And then once the DEA cracked down, all those prescriptions were removed that left a huge supply void. So now all we hear about is fentanyl. Um, and that's why, you know, there was, there's demand, the supply was removed. Some entrepreneur capitalist <laughs> saw that and injected the supply with what they could have available, which is fentanyl. Yeah. And we know that it's very harmful and it's, you know, as nurses, we know that it's so much more potent than morphine. So if you have not professionals trying to dose it out somewhere and they're used to dosing something else, then someone gets lethal amounts of fentanyl. I just, I think it's such a um, interesting model because it does seem to work and it also is, makes sense. Like addiction is not going away, like you said. So I love that the, that, that this country is starting to adopt that, uh, you know, maybe however, you know, in pockets here and there, but still it seems like, you know, if you're measuring success by the number of clinics you're, you've opened, then certainly it's changing lives. Yeah. So where now do you go from here? Like, where do you see your yourself? And that's such a cliche question, but where do you see yourself in five years? Or what do you see as your role in, um, I don't know, making the change that you're seeing and what you're doing even bigger and more expansive? Well, much to the dismay of my wife, um, once I finished my MBA, um, USC Upstate, which is where I got my BSN from, is starting a DNP program on public and community-based services and health. So I'll probably apply to go um, to get that. Why do you and need it? I love school. Okay. <laughs> Me too. <But> also, <laughs> Good enough. <laughs> all joking aside, if I found that in community-based kind of 
like as a liaison or as a marketer or something, if I can walk in and say, hey, I have a doctorate in community health, someone will kind of perk up and look at me and say, oh, okay. Um, And my ultimate goal is to really get to the point where I'm working on public policy at a government level, at Mm -hmm. a state level. Um, I've been in a few, uh, I've been in a work group um, in North Carolina which was a really cool experience. It was all um, kind of concerned parties with opiate use. There were counselors there. There were people that had um, inpatient and residential facilities. And then on the other side of the spectrum, there were people there from the sheriff's office, from the city police department, from EMS. This is what we're seeing. These are the calls we're running. These are the arrest reports that we're having. Um, And then from our side, it was, these are the services we can offer. This is how we can help. And by the end of that work group, it was just so great to see, you know, like the, the people from law enforcement or EMS say, oh, well, you know, we really can you know, work on this. Um, we're working on trying to make like some sort of um, like court where, you know, maybe instead of putting people in jail or prison for possession of narcotics, then maybe they can go to a treatment program instead um, and getting them the help they need because I, mean, I don't believe that just locking someone away is going to treat their addiction if it's you know it's, it's if it does it's only temporarily because they can't right. get access right i think that and it helps i mean dr cooper does help with the fact that you look like you're 20 you know it gives you a little bit more cred <laughs> yeah i'm sure you I, get that all the time Zach. I, yeah i, I was I mean that I mean that in the most flattering way. (laughs) I was actually talking to someone the other day and I said, you know, I've been a nurse for like working as a nurse for eleven years this month. And they just kind of stared at me for a minute. Yeah. (laughs) And I was like, Yeah, eleven years. And they're like, How old are you? They think I'm doing when I'm they think that's how old you are. (laughs) Yeah. Or when I'm doing interviews or I walk in like if, if to a new employee and it's like, hey, my name's Zach. I'm the director. They just kind of stare at me for a minute. <laughs> like, I I've, I know what I'm doing. I promise. <laughs> Stop joking around, kid. Go get your dad. <laughs> um, oh. I am just, I, I was so surprised by this whole conversation. Maybe, maybe that's why. I mean, it's not that I, you know, I just talked enough about you. It's not like I had my low expectations, but I just love the story and the arc of how, you know, rural Southern kid goes to Abu Dhabi, has his mind blown, learns something, changes, comes back, implements the change and is continuing to do so. I, I really think that, um, you know, we, we have the privilege of speaking to so many people who it's one thing to think differently, but it's another thing to have the courage to do something about it. And, uh, I just love what you're saying and I, you know, anything we can do to support you. And I, I hope getting this podcast out will also, you know, people who are working in the specialty that you're working in and are so frustrated at the punishment kind of methodology and 
you know, what are you doing there that you're, you're, you're expanding so much and so quickly that we can implement here? You know, you know, you never know. I know you're, in, you're infectious on LinkedIn, but you never know. So you're just infectious. You're just such a, I just love, I love talking to you, Zach. I think you're just, is infectious the right word? <laughs> you're <laughs> contagious. Right you're contagious. You're contagious. <laughs> yeah. And don't forget, if you're a nurse listening to this, you can go over to myportal.pro and get a CE for listening to Zach's story. <laughs> thank you, Zach. Oh, thank you, guys. I had a blast. I know I take a lot of pauses, but a, a lot of times I'll get to talking about something and get on my my soapbox and my pedestal, and I just ramble and ramble and ramble, and I'm getting a lot better at it. When I moved overseas, a lot of people couldn't understand me. Um, oh, yeah, you were saying that when we had so that my, chat. My accent is interesting now. If you would hear people from my family like it is, it's bizarre would probably be the right word. Like my wife's not from where I'm from. And um, there's a lot of times she's like, I have no idea what your dad just said. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Zach. We cool. need to keep in touch. Well, actually, Absolutely. if somebody does listen to this and they want to get in touch with you and, you know, what do you do and how do we do that here? How can they get a hold of you? Um. I'm on my LinkedIn most every day. They could shoot me messages on there. That's probably the easiest way because unless it's my work email, a lot of times I don't check that's, my personal that's, email. That's perfect. And I can attest yeah. to anyone listening to this that you, I DM'd you and you got back to me right away about the microphone or whatever. I can't remember. Hey, I was a salesperson in COVID. I had to learn the ways of the LinkedIn. Sure thing. Thanks, Zach. Thanks, Zach. Thank you, guys. Renegades.